beginning in verse 7. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. That's the, that's the text I'll be preaching from. Uh, most of you here don't understand spreadsheets. Possibly the worst Easter sermon opening of all time, just now. But, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm one of those people that, that, that don't understand spreadsheets well, but some of you do. I've been in meetings with some of you, and it's clear that you get spreadsheets. Why do I bring this up? Um, you know, I was, I was at a get-together in our neighborhood a couple of days ago, and there was a, a lady I met for the first time, and she was, her husband couldn't come, but just getting to know her, and she was talking about her husband as a, he's an engineer, just linear thinker, and he, just, he does everything on spreadsheets. So their, their camping list, you know, the to-do thing, spreadsheets. Uh, everything, family finances, spreadsheets. Projects that he's working on around the, around the home, spreadsheet. Some of you click with that, you resonate with that, and you're looking at the rest of us because you understand it. And you're looking at us thinking, if, if you would just put more of your life onto spreadsheets, it would be a game changer. It would clarify and you would understand better. And the rest of us are kind of looking back at you and we're thinking, okay, two things. Number one, we believe you. Number two, we still don't understand spreadsheets. And I think at some level, what the spreadsheet people do to the non-spreadsheet people is sort of what we preachers do to you on Easter morning. You know, Easter morning, we just sort of throw the kitchen sink at you about the resurrection. And at some level, we're just sort of looking at you saying, I mean, he rose from the dead. Don't you see how that changes everything? And like, no one will say it because it's Easter, but kind of the room is looking back thinking, not everybody, but a lot of people, all right, number one, we believe you. Number two, we, we still don't understand. Like, like, you really can be here thinking, okay, I, either I concede the point or I really like the point that Jesus physically, bodily, not metaphorically, rose from the dead. I believe that is true. I have no idea how it impacts having a rebellious child. I, I have no idea how that's a game changer if my job is a touch and go and I may not have it two months from now. I don't know how to connect the dots. And I want to look at this passage together to try to connect the dots because this Obviously, this is an old passage. You know, the New Testament's almost 2,000 years old. But this, this passage is by the Apostle Paul. And in case you don't know who that is, he's not one of the original 12 disciples who were apostles. Apostles were, you know, authorized by Jesus to, to speak for him, to teach for him, to write things that we now regard as the very word of God even though they're flawed people like us. But Paul came later. Paul met Jesus after he had died and risen from the dead. And this passage we're going to look at, he's writing to a group of Christians, and that's really important. These words are not just to people in general about the general human condition. He's writing to Christians about the Christian life, and that's really important. There's a focused application. And what I want you to hear him saying is, uh, life is hard, and I'm not so much writing about my past or my future. I'm writing about my present. In in the original Greek, this passage is loaded with present tense verbs. 
So he's writing about his now. But I want you to listen for how he speaks in terms of two resurrections. All right? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But we, and when he says we, think other apostles and his colleague Timothy. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the sound of each other's voices, singing your praises, and singing what we believe. Thank you for the sound of each other's voices saying your word back to you. Thank you for the sound of prayer together. And we ask that we'll continue to worship you as we listen. Help us to hear you and open us up to you. And we pray that your word would be meat and drink for our souls. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me, let me ask you if you've heard some version of this. And, uh, and I know that in this room, there's, there's folks from all kinds of different backgrounds. Some of you, I mean, this may be the first uh, Christian church service you've ever been to. Some of you may have grown up in the church, everybody in between. But especially those who've been around the church, got a background with it. Tell me if you've heard some version of this where someone will say something to the effect of, you know, Christians go around a lot of times with these long faces, and and they shouldn't do that. Christians ought to be the happiest people in the town. I mean, you think about it. Like, we know that God exists, and we believe that He's real, and that He's living, and we believe that He sent His Son 
and that we believe that in His Son our sins are forgiven, and we, we believe that God lives inside of us. He's not just way off in the distance. We believe that we've got each other. We believe that we're headed for somewhere great. We should be the happiest people in the world. Now, if you've heard that, okay, I'm, I'm going to venture a guess that probably at some level you thought, I think that that's right. But something's off about that. And I want you to contrast that with what uh, someone said to me just this past week. And I'm going to be vague um, just for confidentiality, but it was someone here in town who lost a loved one about six months ago. And, of course, in our culture, you get about a week to grieve and then snap back. And this person has not snapped back yet. And they're not supposed to because there's like, this is the first Easter without. And then there'll be first summer without. There's there's yet more calendar to go just to get through the firsts. So this person is still very sad. And um, they, I'll speak in the plural, said to me, it's not just that, it's that I just, it just is all on me. Everything from Belgium to ISIS, to Officer Jacobs being shot, to the family of the shooter left behind, to just the whole thing, where I just feel like it's all I can do to come up and take a breath. Do you ever feel like that? And, and, I, and I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. I, I feel like more than I've ever heard some of you say to me, I'm about to stop watching the news. And on the one hand, we don't want to do that. We don't, you know, Christians do not need to be people that have their head in the sand. Sometimes we are. We don't need to be that way. We need to take a, I'm about to talk about that, a bold look at things right in the face. But it's so sad. It's sad globally. It's sad locally. And it's sad about me and things in my own life. Some that happened to me and some that are my fault. That's our present tense. And here's what I want you to think about. And this is ironic. Paul, the Apostle Paul, on the one hand, he's always trying to point you to Jesus. You read anything he wrote, he's always trying to get you to Jesus. But on the other hand, in different places in his letters, he'll say, I want you to watch me as I follow Christ. In fact, he'll even say things like, I want you to imitate me. Now, ultimately, don't look at me, look at him. But let me help you understand what it looks like to look at him and to follow him. That is what he's doing in this passage. This passage is about life in a hard world in the present. So here's how I want to look at, look at this. First off, the present. And then I want to look at the bookends. You know, you know what bookends are that hold the present in place, the past and the future. And then look at the present again and how it's different if those are true. All right? So the present, and then the book ends, and then back to the present. Now, just starting off here, what does the Apostle Paul say about his life as an apostle? Again, I don't know how much you know about the Apostle Paul, but he's just one of the most famous people in Christianity. And you might think, man, what a life. He writes Scripture. He goes to exotic places. He tells people about Jesus. God uses him in just really a, a, a remarkable, remarkable way. All that's true. What was it like being him? 
Let's boil it down this way. Listen to how he talks about his soul, like what he feels on his insides, and then listen to how he talks about his body. Human beings are soul and body. What was it like for him? First, his soul, verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed, like where we don't know what to do. We are persecuted. And understand, everybody in the Bible is not a cartoon character. Everybody in the Bible is a real person, which means that when Paul, who grew up a devout Jew, when he, without (laughs) wanting to, as he's trying to suppress the worship of Jesus, as he becomes a worshiper of Jesus and a follower of Jesus, and that impacts all his prior relationships and people turned on him, that didn't feel good. And he says that we're crushed. Paul, how do you feel today? I feel afflicted. I'm persecuted. I'm confused. I'm crushed on my insides. Now, that's his, that's his soul. What about his body? And listen to this description, verse 10. Always carrying in the body, meaning like bodies like his, the death of Jesus. And you could actually translate that, carrying in the body the dying of Jesus. Verse 11, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Verse 12, dying is at work in us. Like my body is deteriorating, but not just in a generic, hey, yeah, we're all getting older, we're all dying. It's, I'm, I'm Jesus dying. Listen to this description. This is from later in 2 Corinthians. I won't read the whole thing. This is where he just sort of off the cuff gives you a sampling of what his life is like physically. Imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Toil, hardship, many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and exposure. In one of Paul's other letters, not this one, he says, almost at the end of the letter, he says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. And I'm not being corny. Paul literally could like roll up his sleeve and say, all right, that's where the stones hit me in Lystra. And here's where I was lashed in such and such a place. Yet Jesus' marks and wounds and damage all over his body. Cold, exposure, sleepless nights, and on and on and on. And when he sort of sums up, what is it like to be me in the present? Like, what my soul experiences, what my body. Did you, did you catch the image he used at the beginning? He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. This is a great image. Like, think about, you know those orange pots that everybody uses to plant stuff in? And if you don't have any orange pots, do not buy them. Just borrow one from someone. If you'll just set it by your door or like behind a shed, if you come back in a month, there'll be three. I don't know where they come from. They reprodu- if you will leave them alone, they will reproduce. I, Dana and I have never bought one. We have 40. Like, we'll give you some if you need orange clay pots. But if, unless you have one that just came from the store, if you look at it, they're all chipped. They're all cracked. They're all discolored. And they hold, you know, like life and beauty. And Paul says, all right, here's what we're like. 
Because here's the thing, like the guy that'll stand up and say, hey, Christians ought to be the happiest people in town. At one level, that guy's right. He's saying, we've got this treasure, but what's the treasure in? It's in us. What are we? We are these cracked, chipped, discolored jars of clay. Now, would you say Paul is being realistic? Does he sound like rah-rah, just think positive thoughts? For instance, and again, I wouldn't wish pain on anybody, but it's sort of strangely encouraging that the apostle Paul, brilliant apostle, there are people who would not cross the street to hear Brian Habig preach or to go to any church who would say, Paul was one of the brilliant minds of history. That the apostle Paul says, we're perplexed. Like, I, 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 go, I go through life, and sometimes I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. There, there's another place later in this letter where he says, I, I'm anxious about all these churches. And that's ironic because in another letter, Paul said, don't be anxious for anything. And I think if we had quoted that to him, he would have said, I know I wrote that, but I am. I'm just concerned about these churches pain in my body and pain in my soul. He's very realistic, all right? That's the present. What are the bookends? And I, and I mentioned to you at the beginning, you know, look for two resurrections. Listen to this. He's just, he's brief because Paul talks about this all the time. Look in verse 14. Here's the bookends. There's a past one and there's a future one. Past one first. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus. Now, that's the big thing that we're celebrating this morning, but that's the big thing we're celebrating all the time. The reason that we gather for worship and praise on the first day of the week and not the seventh day of the week is the resurrection. It's every, every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. What does the resurrection mean for Paul and man? Uh, where do we start? Let, let, me, let me throw out two things, both with a D, okay? Uh, demonstration and deposit. The physical, bodily, non-mythical, non-metaphorical, literal, bodily raising from the dead of Jesus, according to Paul, is God saying to the world, this is real. This is not yet another religious leader who said, I get it and no one else did. Look to my teaching, follow me, and your problems will be dealt with. And you'll go to the happy afterlife and your sins and mistakes will be taken care of. If Jesus had just taught and done miracles and died and stayed in the tomb, his followers, his followers would have to say, uh, we hope he was right. But when he does this utterly supernatural thing, rising from the dead. That's God saying to the world, he is my son. He's not a crackpot who just claims to be my son. He is fully God and fully man, my son. What he said and he did is true. But he's also a deposit that Paul says something along these lines. Jesus's resurrection is sort of like God's 
deposit, God's earnest money, that if you trust my son, if you give your whole life over to him and say, I can't fix myself, I cannot redeem myself, I need a savior. If you do that to my son, not only will I renovate your soul, but one of these days, whether you are burned to death or drowned to death or come apart in a million pieces or you're just put in a tomb and you decay, I'm going to raise your body and join it to your glorified soul. And like his body, which had continuity with the old body, still had marks in it, but was different than his body. People didn't recognize him. I'm going to raise you. And people will will recognize who you are. They'll know it's you. There'll be continuity, but there'll be discontinuity because you'll have a glorified body that cannot die and is not hurt or damaged by the problems of this world anymore. And just so you'll know that's real, here's body number one. What is that like? And listen, I, I love this phrase. He says, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And listen to this part. Bring us with you, you Corinthian Christians, into his presence. And this is, uh, this is so great because for Paul, heaven is not like Shangri-La or happy science fiction glowing city. Heaven is going to be with Christ. It's physical. It's tactile. It's sensory to go be with the risen Christ. What will that be like for God to raise people up? And I'm telling you, the most devout theologians in the world, I think, are going to come alive and go, whoa, man, he was not kidding. And be brought by God with the other people that believe in him to Jesus. What will that be like? I heard a great interview this past week. And it's funny what happened in this interview. The, uh, the interviewer shared a story, and the guest started interviewing him. The interviewer shared this story that um, before his mom died, one thing on her bucket list was to see the northern lights. And so the family uh, pooled their resources, and they went on a 10-day trip to Iceland to see the northern lights. And, and I've, I've never seen them, but, but apparently, you know, it's touch and go, like, it could be a cloudy night. It, the, the weather system might be different. You, you don't know when you're going to see them when you're not. But out of maybe 10 days, the northern lights were just spectacular for seven. So then he, he just shared that. And the guest asked him, and this is a perfect question. He said, what did your mom's face look like when she saw the lights? And the interviewer said two thoughts. Number one, kid in a candy store. And then he said, really, no, this is, this is it. She looked like a baby on her back underneath her absolutely favorite little mobile, just like not 99% absorption and engagement, 100.0% attention and engagement and enjoyment. That was mom's face when she finally saw those lights. Now, it would be one thing. If the New Testament said, now, heaven is like that, but better. 
or if it said, heaven is like the best feast you've ever had, but better. Or heaven is like the most intense romantic connection you've ever experienced, but better. What does verse 17 say? This light momentary affliction, by which he means things like flogging and martyrdom, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There are no vantage points of comparison for what it's like for everything that's wrong with your soul and everything that's wrong with your body to be made forever gloriously right and unchangeably right and then to be brought to the one who did it. And for your heart to just light up because this is what your, he is the one your heart was made for. There is no point of comparison. The reality for the Christian is life is hard. Painful things that are our fault, painful things that happen to us, painful world. But our present is between two resurrections. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of those who believe in him. Now, here's, here's the gist of what I want to think about. When that gets really deep down in your heart, because just because you've been around Christianity doesn't mean that's gotten deep down in your heart. You know, I mean, like, you've heard me say this before. I grew up watching Schoolhouse Rock, which was really one of the high watermarks of 70s culture is Schoolhouse Rock. There were these little cartoon vignettes on Saturday morning to teach about grammar and history and things like that. And you sung stuff about grammar and verbs and history and all that. And so you learned it. And one of the most famous ones is I'm just a bill. And it's about how a bill becomes a law. Used to sing it, loved it. I have no idea how a bill becomes a law. (laughs) I've been around it my whole life. I've read in the newspapers about bills becoming law. Utterly, it's rocket science to me. Just because you've been around like Bible stuff, church stuff, resurrection stuff, does not mean that it's gone deep down in the heart. When it goes deep in the heart, what does it do to your present? Does it make, the, does it make pain go away? No. Or it would have made Paul's go away. But it transforms the present. Uh, look, think about this. He says that negatively and positively. Look in verse 16. He says, so, in light of all this stuff I just said, we do not lose heart. And I, I know I've said this even recently, but it has just been interesting for me as I stand before you on Sundays and then talk to you all week is to hear how when, when I bring up the topic of despair, how much it resonates with so many of you. Like that, that I'm, I'm always kind of close to just saying, what's the point and throwing in the towel because it's just too much. And Paul says, look, we do not lose heart. So is he going all rah-rah on us? No. What's the next phrase? Our outer self is wasting away, okay? Still being realistic. But, and here's positively, our inner self, our inner man, 
is being renewed day by day. And man, who doesn't want renewal? Who feels like, yep, I'm alive as I choose to be. I am spiritually vibrant as I ever want to be. Don't want to get any more vibrant. Everyone wants renewal. We're being renewed day by day. All right, question. What does renewed realism sound like? And and go back to the early verses. Go back to verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I mean, it's interesting to watch us sometimes as we watch things like ISIS. And our reaction, because we live comfortable lives and feel like everybody should live a comfortable life, we look baffled like, why would anybody be trying to exterminate Christianity? Paul would not, Paul would never say that. Paul, of course people are trying to exterminate Christianity. Of course we're crushed. But we are not destroyed. We live between the resurrections. How do you get that in your heart so that that the present really is transformed? It's not just like Easter sermon stuff, but it's real all the time. And, and here's the real takeaway, I think. Look in verse 18. And th- this is interesting because Paul's going to say, look at things that are invisible. And at one level, that doesn't make sense. Verse 18. We look, we Christians look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And here, here's the reality for all of us. All of us. Christians are the people that talk about live by faith and not by sight. Faith is trusting in what you can't see, hoping for what you you can't see visibly. We're the faith people. And we say that, but like the scene is just coming at you all the time. And it's work problems. And it's an angry supervisor. And it's spit up. And it's bills. And it's bad diagnoses. And bad news. Boom, boom. We see it, we see it, we see it. And Paul says, I mean, do, do you hear him saying, I ignore that. Be positive. Is that, is that what he's saying? He says this, we look at the things that are invisible. We look at the things that are invisible. How do you do that? And I, I want to I give an example. This is, a, this is from a book that came out a while back called The Masks of Melancholy. And it's written by a guy named John White, and he's a Christian psychiatrist. And, and this is interesting. As a Christian and as a psychiatrist, he himself experienced depression. Again, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but it's almost strangely, if not encouraging, reassuring that a Christian psychiatrist can experience depression. And listen to what he says about his own experience. He says, years ago when I was seriously depressed... The thing that saved my sanity was a dry-as-dust grappling with Hosea's prophecy. It's a book in the Old Testament, Hosea. He says, I spent weeks, morning by morning, making meticulous notes, checking historical references in the text, and slowly I began to sense the ground under my feet growing steadily firmer. I knew without any doubt that healing 
was springing from my struggle to grasp the meaning of the passage. If sufferers have any ability to concentrate, here's what he says, they should do solid Bible study rather than devotional reading. Because in most depressed people, devotional reading is stopped altogether or degenerated into something unhealthy and unhelpful. In other words, his words, not mine, when I was absolutely in the depths, what I needed was not a book about God or a book about Jesus or a book about Christianity. I needed God's Word. And I didn't feel super better the first morning that I read through it, but I had to sit with it and sit and study and mull and make notes and think about it. And he changed me. And I'm sure he'd be quick to say, that's not always the silver bullet for depression. But what is the thing he's modeling? All I could see was darkness. I had to sit and look at what is eternal and unseen to experience healing. Again, sometimes we, the preachers, we throw the resurrection at you and kind of go, now, better? And you're sort of looking back going, no, no, I'm not. All I can see is the diagnosis. All I can see is unemployment. All I can see is marriage problems. That's all I can see. And look, you're normal. But what I want to commend to you is to, uh, and if I was speaking to a group of people that didn't have the Bible in their language, I wouldn't say this, but that's not our situation. To open the Scriptures and read for yourself. What does it say is true now because Jesus rose from the dead? And what does it say is going to be true of those whom God will raise from the dead to sit with it. And don't expect to feel better immediately, but to sit and to think and to pray. Instead of reading a book about God, to read it for yourself and maybe sing a psalm as your own song and lift your head to get it in your heart. Let me say this lastly. Um, I've shared this with several of you, and several of you have said that you found benefit in this. It's not original because this was said to me, so I'm passing it on because it was helpful to me. Years ago, I was talking with a, a counselor, a Christian, about something that was coming up in my life, and I didn't want to go through it. And so I was talking with her about that. And she said, look, you need to do this, and it's going to hurt, but it's not going to harm you. And I had never heard anyone make that distinction. It's going to hurt. It won't feel good, but it's not going to harm you. And here's the amazing thing, guys, is that when you actually believe in Jesus Christ as Savior of soul and body and know that He's been raised from the dead and my resurrection is coming, here's the thing. We're going to go through things that hurt 
deeply. And this world can harm you. It can leave permanent marks of damage. But ultimately, ultimately, the existence of Jesus' people is an eternity unharmed, unmarked, undamaged, all the tears wiped away because the resurrections are true. Amen. Let's pray together.